drugs. <laughs> this is the second go we've had at starting this podcast. Um, so, take it away, man. Rightio. So, uh, this is Pat and Rod Save the World. And this week, we're, um, well, we're talking about drugs and the legalization and prohibition of them. Um, after watching a really good documentary last night called Culture High. Uh, yeah, it's available on Vimeo. Not unfortunately if you're in Australia or New Zealand. Um, you can get it if you're in the United States. I'm not sure about the UK. We had to use a virtual private network to watch it. So if you're hip to that kind of stuff, that's the way to do it if you're in a country that doesn't uh, have a license to watch it. But you still pay for it, obviously. So go to Vimeo, take a look at it. It's called Culture High. And it's a bloody good documentary. It really is. Yeah. Um, I think the documentary is basically analysing America's prohibition of drugs, particularly marijuana. And they're Well, it's pretty much all marijuana. They don't really... Oh, they... That's a good point. Yeah, it is basically just about marijuana prohibition. Yeah. The, I mean, the only time they reference other drugs is when they are sort of comparing them to marijuana. That's true, yeah. And um, I suppose the really interesting thing that they have done in this documentary is, for the most part, they consider it a given that the audience is down with the fact that the war on drugs is stupid. And they address the sort of the question begged by that which is why are we still doing it like what is it about us that compels us to try and do this yeah and i um i think that's a really interesting thing but i thought that they were missing the boat a uh, a little bit just in terms that i i think that there are still lots and lots of people out there i don't know if it would be a majority or not who aren't on board with the idea that the war on drugs is stupid and has failed um because i i know uh, plenty of people in Australia who are, um, you know, anti-marijuana and still believe it should be uh, illegal. How would you summarise the profile of someone that still thinks the war on drugs is a good idea? Uh, do, you, do you see a certain kind of archetype? Uh, to start with, very conservative. Um, more or less goes without saying that, I suppose. Um, and when you say conservative... As I mean politically conservative. Yeah, okay. Um, and um, generally uh, not uh, without a wide range of uh, life experience. Yeah, so someone who hasn't travelled an enormous amount? Not just travelled an enormous amount, but just haven't met, uh, to, like even within Australia, a large number of people from different uh, backgrounds and ethnicities and... And things like that, okay. um, which often goes hand in hand with a very uh, conservative political viewpoint as well. Um, that is true. And um, uh, you know, and I'm talking about people, you know, ages from 25 to 70, just about, hmm. um, who you know uh, still believe that it should be illegal and you should go to jail for it. Um, and uh, I think. Um, like if you were, if you were to pull out one defining characteristic of them, it would be trust in what government tells them. That's an interesting point. Hmm. And I think that the really sort of visceral thing about it is that these people aren't just disapproving of drugs. 
they are disapproving to the extent that they believe in their heart of hearts that you should be locked in a cage if you disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a head fuck for me. Yeah, like, if you really think about it, like, uh, the, um, uh, <laughs> the Greg Giraldo comedy bit, I, th- I thought was always great talking about that, which is... Um, <laughs> It's a natural plant that grows in the dirt. You know, it's not natural. Eight-year-old dudes uh, with hard-ons, we got pills for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they, and they want to put people in jail for smoking something that grows in the dirt. Yeah. Well, let's put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. So for anyone listening, if you want to check that clip out, we'll link to yeah. it on YouTube. Much better when you're actually listening to it and not me butchering it. But it's yeah. actually he did all right there. <laughs> um, he he did subs- Did he die of a drug overdose? I believe he did. Oh, that is a pity. Yeah, not marijuana though, because you can't. Not marijuana. <laughs> no, I think In, the. I don't know for sure. We could probably look it up, but I I, I have a suspicion it was might have been prescription drugs. Um, right. We do have Google here if we want to. Let's not. I, what I want to do. The way that they usually classify these things, so far as uh, danger unto death is concerned, is with a classification called LD50. And LD stands for lethal dose. 50 stands for 50% of people will, at that dose, die. So let's find out what the LD50 for marijuana is. We'll be right back. And we're back. So what did you find out, Pat? So... um, on a website called mindthescienceGap.org, it turns out that the LD50 in rodent studies um, for THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol, um, which is the active ingredient of marijuana, is 15 and 70 grams. So that's sort of the, the range. And to put that in perspective, the casual user generally only needs about two to three milligrams of THC to become intoxicated, um, while habitual users might need between five and ten times that amount. So since three milligrams equals 0.003 grams, a casual user would need to smoke about 5,000 times the normal amount to approach a potentially lethal dose. So basically, unless you are injecting pure THC from a giant syringe directly into your vein, there is no way that you can die from THC, which is the active ingredient of marijuana. You would lose consciousness if you tried to smoke enough to die you would lose consciousness well before you got to the point um of actually uh keeling over from thc as opposed to say prescription drugs which is uh what killed greg Giraldo. yeah so what did you find out about that mate um oh, not too much just um i was just looking for his cause of death um what what i knew it was a drug overdose but what uh, particular uh whether it was a illicit or um or prescription uh, and yeah, the uh, the first article I found um, just had it listed as prescription drugs, not the specific type. Uh, he did have various other alcohol and uh, drug problems throughout his life as well, mm. uh, but it's the prescription that killed him. Well, prescription drugs, um, definitely the biggest killer. 
Yeah. And not to echo all the trite points, though, like I really think that the interesting thing about this documentary is it talked about what does it say about us when something that is so self-evidently stupid that every single data point available demonstrates is not working remains the, the preeminent policy in the Western world. Do you think uh, just before we get to that, we uh, should just quickly recap those data points, um, if, in case there's anyone listening who perhaps was still on the other side of the fence. Yeah, I'd like to think that our enlightened listenership would all be on our side of the fence on this, but <laughs> you're right. There could well be the occasional Chinese government agent who has different views to us on this. So let us try and convince them. Um, did you have anything in particular you wanted to start on? Uh, I suppose... Um, uh, you know, you could start easily with, say, the medicinal purposes of, uh, of cannabis as a reason for their legality as opposed to prohibition. Mm. Um, it, uh, I'm no expert on the subject, uh, but it seems that a lot of the, uh, you know, scientific background for the medicinal use of the, of the drug is pretty well accepted. Um, you know, you've got, well, you've, in Australia, you've got now the state of New South Wales talking about uh, legalising it for medicinal purposes. And that's the conservative and, wing of the, yeah. of the uh, political establishment, by yeah. the way. Um, there's even bloody Tony Abbott, one of the most conservative right-wing prime ministers um, Australia's had in recent history, talking about it, but it should, it should be legal for medicinal purposes. Um, mm. and, uh, and obviously, you know, uh, parts of the states and other parts of the world um, you know, these governments wouldn't be making it legal for medicinal purposes um, just for the fun of it. Do you think it would help to discuss, like, uh, the issue in a bit wider and ambit than just cannabis? Uh, in the sense that, like, I actually think it's an interesting question when you start to consider whether or not things like heroin and cocaine should be outlawed. And meth, yeah. you know, these are the, I've heard them collectively described, and this is a good, I think, way to describe them as the powders. And my opinion on it is that basically the powders, meth, cocaine, heroin, um, should be outlawed um, because the societal damage in terms of theft, um, lethal overdoses, uh, are just so well recognised and established. Um, obviously, like for me, cocaine is the one on the boundary line. Mm. I tend. To... I, I wouldn't imagine. Sorry. To... Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't imagine again without having seen any figures on it um, that uh, cocaine would be any worse in terms of health risk to the user and risk to other human beings around the user than say alcohol. That's a good point. In fact, why don't we find out how many cocaine-linked deaths there are? Um, let's do a Google break. You mean uh, uh, just linked to taking the cocaine, not crime related to the cocaine itself? Yeah, well, I, I suppose... Because there would be an awful lot of cocaine-related deaths that involve someone shooting someone over. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, I just think it'd be interesting to get the statistics to find out overdose, cocaine overdose. Yeah. I'd be interested to see that. We'll be right back. And we're back. So, very interesting statistics, in fact. Um, deaths from cocaine overdose in the US, around 5,000 per year. We will put the link to the um, Wikipedia page that we found that statistic on. And 
deaths from um, opiate painkillers like Vicodin and Oxycontin in the US per year, 15,000. Now, I'm not sure how many of those people who died are medically supervised, um, how many of those people are taking them from the black market, but you know, I presume that a high proportion are medically supervised yeah. and clearly it's a far more dangerous game to play uh, the opiate painkiller game than just, you know, snorting the coke on a Saturday night. Yeah, I, I found that uh, interesting. I suspected that uh, the opiate painkillers were going to be much higher, but I, uh, I wasn't sure it was going to be triple. Yeah, there's been a marked increase since 2002. Um, there's a fascinating documentary called the, uh, I think it's called the OxyContin Express, and it's about the pain clinics in Florida. They just hand these things out like candy, and then people jump in a car from a Florida pain clinic and just distribute them. And one of the major problems in the US these days is people, are, they're hooked on the pill forms of these drugs, um, and the pills become too expensive, and then they switch to heroin. So there's been a huge rise in heroin addiction because people uh, have replaced the more expensive pills with the sort of the black tar, sketchy shit coming out of Afghanistan. Mm. So modern day uh, descendants of the opium dens. Now that I'm a more informed individual, I'm going to come out and say it. I think cocaine should be legal. Um, I think that if the statistics are correct that we just pulled off the net. 5,000 per year. Yeah. I mean, that is just so... Even allowing for absolute numbers of people consuming alcohol, surely you're basically less likely to die from a cocaine-related reason than you are an alcohol-related reason. And this is before we even get on to, um, you know, any uh, broader reasons why drugs like marijuana or cocaine in particular... Um, should be uh, should be decriminalised or legalised. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And that's you know that's talking about um, breaking the uh, the power of the uh, of the cartels, um, Mexico mainly for, for marijuana and um, places like Colombia for uh, and Bolivia for um, for cocaine, obviously. Hmm. Um, and uh, and I think uh, you know I love my historical examples, but um, obviously the alcohol prohibition in America in the thirties. Um, which uh, did little more than uh, allow the rise of the bootleggers, um, criminals who became extraordinarily wealthy um, for providing a, uh, a drug that people wanted that had been legal at some stage. Um, and uh, and in, you know, instead of decreasing crime, which was one of the uh, goals of, uh, of prohibi prohibitionists, hmm. um, it was there was actually an increase of crime, in particular violent crime. Uh, and you look at what's happening with, um, oh, I mean, the, the sheer number of murders every year in Mexico. Um, They're up to seventy thousand yeah. just over the last few years. It's absolutely insane. It's, it's insane, um, and that's that's just uh, in Mexico, let alone. Uh, criminal uh, activity in the in the states or in Australia or anywhere else go ahead one of the really interesting statistics from the culture high was that fully 60% of the revenue that the Mexican drug cartels bring in is from the sale of marijuana 
Yeah. Uh, which surprised me. I actually thought it would have been lower. I thought that cocaine was their big thing. Um, so, I mean, did you find that a surprising statistic? I, uh, I'd heard somewhere before that marijuana may not be huge, like uh, a large percentage, but I didn't yeah. know it was the majority. No. Well, and I, I mean, I thought, of course, that um, that's how the uh, Mexican cartels started with marijuana, with large bales of marijuana. But I thought that sort of the majority of their business being in that drug was an old school thing. Like I thought that that was how it was in the 70s. Mm not obviously in the 80s. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's an interesting... Um, mm-hmm. That was an interesting statistic, and I mm-hmm. think that... Uh, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm just fo- sorry, just to finally uh, finish the point on the um, sure. other prohibition thing. Legalise alcohol again, and, uh, and a lot of the bootleggers uh, go out of business. Not all of them, of course. A lot of them moved into other things. A lot of them moved into marijuana, which became illegal shortly after the alcohol prohibition ended. Yeah. Uh, so it, um, in terms of a uh, cutting down crime um, measure, it's a no-brainer. Can I get you on the record? Yeah. So far as cocaine's concerned, yes. I mean, I actually think, having seen those statistics, it's a comparatively safe drug. It would not be something that I take. I'll be absolutely frank with you. Hmm. But whether or not I'm willing to advocate someone being locked in a fucking cage for <laughs> taking it um, or put into a compulsory health program, which is obviously how we would like to see drug difficulties dealt with, yeah. like, I if just I can't justify it. Yeah. I, I, with 5,000 deaths compared to 15,000 for prescription painkillers, for Christ's sakes, clearly it's safer and none of those people are having it administered by a doctor. So I can't really see the reason to forbid it. And like I said, not something I would take. I steer clear of anything with addictive qualities. That's my rule. Um, anything that spikes your dopamine, I'm not interested in, basically. I, um, I have uh, an interest, <laughs> interesting take on cocaine. I, um, I spent a, a fair bit of time in South America. Um, so you did. <laughs> Uh, and uh, everywhere you see, uh, you know, in places like uh, Bolivia and Peru uh, and countries like this, you'll see uh, signs and T-shirts and all this sort of thing saying uh, La Coca no es droga. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, coca, which is the, the plant, yeah. um, is not a drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, the way these, like they've been putting, uh, chewing the coca leaves and making coca leaf tea yeah. and all these sort of things. Um uh, as the basic cure all for centuries. Yeah. Um, you've, you've got an upset stomach here, have some coca leaf tea. Mm. Um, you're going on a long hike here, chew some of these for energy. South American Tylenol, um, basically. Yeah. Um, and obviously the, the product cocaine is very different from chewing on a coca leaf. Mm. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I have, uh, I have had cocaine and it's, it's a hell of a drug. it's uh it's actually you know when i stop and think about it it's um it's a little bit scary just you know you suddenly feel 10 feet tall and bulletproof um and just this overweening self-confidence where did you take it um in uh in south america and also on gold coast but specifically where in south america which country oh peru Right, okay. So, I mean, you're getting the good stuff there, right? Yeah. I mean, it hasn't been sort of shuffled through the international drug, drug distribution network. No. <laughs> so, because um, I remember you saying that you were scared at how good it was. Yeah. 
and that you vowed that you would never take it again, or words to that effect. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and that's sort of my view on it. Like, I personally wouldn't do it, but if people want to do that with their spare time, I say good luck to them. Um, well, I mean, you start to get into real policy issues, though. Like, so, and I think that this is equally applicable to smoking, by the way. Yeah. Um, should I be paying taxes into a healthcare system that takes care of people who are like, you know, getting addicted to those sorts of substances and really doing damage to themselves? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose it goes to um, how how free do you think people should be to uh, put things into their own bodies if it doesn't harm anyone but them? As free as they um, like, but yeah. I suppose what I'm saying is there's an indirect harm that's undeniable in terms of increased health costs. Mm. Um, and uh, it's indirect, but yeah. nonetheless, the societal cost is there and it's spread out. Um, and I suppose the sort of counter argument to that would be people are people are taking all these drugs anyway. They're going to end up in the health system anyway if they're uh, decriminalised and there's a measure of government control over them. You get the tax money from um, the sale of these things in the first place. Very good point. Um, so you're getting you're getting a bigger pool of tax money to, um, to put into things like health in the first place. And certainly they are making smokers pay for their future health treatment these days. Yeah. That's actually... I mean, they're, point. what are they up to, like 25 bucks for a pack of smokes? I wouldn't now in Australia know. Or something. I would not know. <laughs> I had my last cigarette on a balcony in, in Nablus <laughs> um, in 2005. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think that would be the, the counter-argument to that one. Yeah, and actually that's probably a reasonable one. Um, because obviously I would like the idea of just letting people do whatever they like. I don't really like the idea of people damaging their own health, but I like the idea that they have the freedom to do it if they want to. And I think that that's really typical of our generation. Yeah. Um, you say that you've come across people who are all for the war on drugs yeah. as a catch-all phrase to describe current drug, drug policy. I've come across very, very few yeah. of our age. Um, uh, well, one example, um, a, um, uh, a girl I used to work with, um, at a newspaper up in Queensland, mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, she was awesome, mm -hmm. um, but she had very, uh, I, I would say outdated views on, uh, on marijuana, uh, in that she, uh, and we actually, uh, wrote, um, competing editorials at one point. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, each putting our own views for, for our readers. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and all of her points were all the things that were already debunked. Um, yeah, like, sure. Like, it's a gateway drug. Well, well it isn't. Even if it is. I've never understood that argument in the sense that, like, gateway drug, like... It's not like it compels you to take other drugs. Yeah. If your risks are increased by taking that drug, and even if your risks do get increased taking others, so what, yeah. actually? Uh, and just, I, I don't want to sound so submissive, uh, so dismissive there, like, oh, well, no, it wasn't, uh, as if there's nothing more to it. No, it actually, you can look at the statistics of the amount of people who take marijuana and the amount of people who then go on to, to consume other drugs, and it's minuscule. Um, yeah. it's just, it's not a, it's not a factor in terms of you take marijuana, then you're going to go on to, uh, do anything else. It's a ridiculous argument. Other yeah. points like, oh, I don't want to, uh, be at risk by people who smoke pot and then go behind the wheel. Um, like, well, 
police can already test for that, and they do test for that. Yeah. Um, in the same way that they test people for drink driving. Yeah. Um, or a similar way that they drink, pe- t- uh, treat people drink driving. All it would really take um, uh, is if the marijuana is legalised, you have a few more of the uh, the drug tests going around the roads with the coppers uh, along with the drink tests and people, uh, you know, okay, some people still risk drink driving now, some people would still risk uh, uh, driving under the influence of marijuana, but most people would be smarter than that. Go ahead. All for that. Um, and I think the other point probably to make about this idea of gateway is that it's really the perfect example of mistaking correlation for causation in the sense that someone who is shooting smack straight into an arm is obviously not going to think twice about smoking marijuana. So if you're taking a harder drug, then, you know, almost certainly, it's not as if you sort of snort cocaine and then go, oh, but not marijuana, thank you very much. That's just too much. It's a limb too far. I mean... (laughs) If you're doing one of the harder drugs, in, in inverted commas, yeah. then obviously you're going to be fine with doing the softer ones. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was worth yeah. making that point. Um. Um, so I suppose hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. I am, I've always been interested in hallucinogens. Full disclosure, I never drink, um, haven't drunk at all alcohol since I was 15 years old. I have reasons for that. None of them particularly controversial. Or I didn't even... actually know you'd ever had a drink. I, I thought you just never, I thought you'd never had one. Oh, no. I mean, well, I remember having wine as a 15-year-old. I mean, never in excessive amounts. Yeah. It's not like I had a bad episode and I won't bore the people listening with my philosophical reasons for not drinking, but, you know, they're basically philosophical. There's really no life experience. It's not like I had a problem with it or anything. So... Um, that I suppose is a strange thing. It's a it's a view that people consider unusual to begin with, and then if you also mention in the same sentence that you're interested in hallucinogens, people just don't know what to make of it. They do look at you a bit funny. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested in hallucinogens, using them as a tool for introspection, using them with real caution respecting the power that they have, not getting yourself into situations where it's a negative thing to take them. Um, both psilocybin, commonly known as magic mushrooms, and also um, eating marijuana, which is a completely different chemical to smoking it. That's a good point. It just reminded me of something there where you were talking about uh, respecting the, uh, you know, things like magic mushrooms and what they can do and um, uh, being careful not to have a bad experience. And it just... Um, it reminded me of a story of a couple of friends of mine who uh, who do a lot of drugs, mm. um, and they'd never done uh, mushrooms before, um, and uh, had one of the worst experiences imaginable, uh, just because they uh, they just took too many. It was like the rookie mistake of rookie mistakes that you would think people who've done all sorts of drugs before would know. Eat it, wait for half an hour, yeah. no effect, pile more in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and then they tried to watch Life of Pi mm. and um, broke their minds a little bit. Do you know <laughs> what I actually think? One of the interesting things about psilocybin is that it really stretches out time. And so I think that the initial onset of the drug is this slowing of time. And before you notice that something's happening to you, time has slowed and you think that it's just been way too long and yeah. that you obviously haven't taken the right 
dose yeah. and that you need to eat more. You you, are, you really need to set a timer so you can yeah, see how that's a mobile telephone with a stopwatch is an indispensable tool when one is consuming hallucinogens um, to keep you know to keep perspective on time is very important because time slows down enormously, and I think that when I explain to people why I think hallucinogens are a good tool, um, what a hallucinogen does, if I can just burden you with this little explanation, is it, it basically in your brain there are certain pathways that uh, have the effect of allowing things to go past your field of vision and your hearing without really paying much attention to them. So if you're walking along a street and a car comes up behind you, you don't flip out, you don't wonder what this giant metal cage is that's rolling down a tarmac. You know what a car is and you ignore it. And what hallucinogens do, both LSG and, sorry, LSD, and psilocybin is they switch off the part of the brain that um, basically uh, uh, reduces things away from your consciousness because they're familiar to you. And so it's as if you're a newborn reappreciating all of these different things as if for the first time, despite the memories that you have of them. And that's a super useful thing to do. Super useful. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to do it very often. No, certainly. But, um, you know, once or twice a year, just getting a completely fresh perspective on things. If only for a few hours. Yeah. Um, I mean, full disclosure, I've never taken LSD. It's a more powerful drug. It lasts for longer. Frankly, it scares me a bit. Um, I've heard that the, if you have a bad experience with it, it's much worse than psilocybin. And so, you know, I've always been a fan of psilocybin, um, i.e. magic mushrooms. They have built-in safety catches as well. So, for instance, if you try and take magic mushrooms two days in a row, on the second day it just doesn't work because your resistance to the drug builds up almost instantaneously and then fades very quickly. So I think if you were really into it and you wanted to basically, in my view, abuse them, you would have to just take them once every three weeks, once every two or three weeks. Yeah. Um, I think uh, just interesting on the uh, on the topic of uh, LSD and mushrooms was the stuff from the documentary last night on uh, Doctor Nut was it? Yeah, yeah, Professor Nut. Professor Nut. Certainly, we will. He basically did a a graph that took into account both quantitative and qualitative factors in measuring societal harm from various drugs. Yeah, both legal and illegal. Yeah, and actually, next time someone looks at me funny for not drinking, but also being a fan of psilocybin at the same time, I will point them to Professor Nutt's graph. Um, Professor Nutt, by the way, is not just a nut. He was commissioned by the UK government yeah. to do a study um, and he's an expert, an expert in his field. field. Yeah. So Spent many years collating the information. Yeah, and he's obviously a smart chap. Yeah. Um, obviously, there was a bit of controversy. He was fired by the government because he wasn't playing ball, um, to be expected. But the interesting thing about his graph is that alcohol is by far and away the most harmful drug, societally speaking. And the least harmful drug drug was psilocybin. Um, and, you know, that's what I will show the next person that questions my life choices about what chemicals I use to alter my consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
I suppose the next topic of conversation perhaps would be like the societal structures that necessitate the continuation of these terrible fucking policies. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of my feelings on this one go to the idea that there are still, uh, you know, still people out there who somehow contrary to 30 years of failure think that the war on drugs is a good and useful and um, workable option. Um, but there are people out there who, who think that. And part of me thinks that there must be um, enough of them uh, that politicians fear losing an election over going against them, um, which they I don't think they really addressed in the uh, in the documentary last night. It was the one like they talked about other reasons why politicians were keeping it, which they mainly focused on lobbying and they uh, did and, and money and that sort of thing. They did. Um, That's actually a very good point, though. Ultimately, the ballot box does talk. Yeah, I I, I just have a suspicion. Uh, that there are that there are still possibly even a majority of people. I mm. mean, when I think about it, when I think how could they possibly think that there is no logic behind it? I think, but it's not yeah, the case. at the end of the day, what sort of what politician anywhere in the world is um, is going to uh, is going to continue a uh, is going to continue a policy just for the lobbyists? If it will lose them an election. How's this for a theory? Yeah. That drug policy has essentially been conflated with criminal justice policy. Um, yep. The prohibition of drugs is a completely separate issue to people who deal in them illegally. But I think that the linkage there perhaps has had drug policy lumped in and subsumed by the general trend towards getting tough on crime, uh, more prisons stricter sentences, no politician has ever done badly out of advocating that. That's true. Um, and so when you have this linkage with drug dealers to drugs, perhaps people, generally speaking, confuse them, at least subconsciously. And perhaps also the politicians are not interested in making that distinction because it's a risky distinction to make. Yeah. Um, so that would be one and theory. And in the meantime, they're also getting their pockets lined. They are, by, you know, prison industrial complex in the United States especially. I think the other reason is that people are genuinely afraid for their kids. When you look at such an irrational policy, there's got to be a sort of a gut, visceral reason why people are terrified of the substances becoming legal. And my, for my money, I think the biggest factor is that people are just terrified of their kids getting into trouble with them which is a reasonable concern to have. I mean, no one's advocating that sub-18-year-olds yeah. are able to go and buy a spliff from a government-regulated smoke shop. In the same way that they can't walk into Dan Murphy's and buy a bottle of whiskey. Absolutely. And I think that the, the statistics are pretty clear about the fact that as a young adult, smoking marijuana is not a good idea while your brain is forming. Um, I don't think anyone's advocating that minors be able to get a hold of whatever drugs are available. And in my world, that would include cocaine. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're obviously not advocating that, to be clear. But I do think people are terrified for their kids. I yeah. mean, do you think there's anything to that? I think there's definitely something to that. Because like you say, when you see an irrational policy, it can only ha it, it couldn't have... Uh, you know, it'd have to have something irrational behind it. Mm. Um, and there's, um, you know, that gut feeling 
must protect the children. It, it's, that is an irrational feeling. It, do, it doesn't actually take reason and logic into account. It's just must protect them. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think there's probably also a cultural influence in the sense that drugs are often associated with different ethnic groups. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, people associate drug consumption with minorities, uh, blacks, Latinos in the United States, for instance, even though the statistics say that every racial group uh, consumes them in equal amounts. Yeah. I suppose you just no, have... Geez, the, uh... The upper echelons of um, Australian law uh, societies run on cocaine. Tell me about it. I actually, I can add a little bit of insight to that. Having been a lawyer in the big city, <laughs> I was a corporate lawyer and um, it was really not an unusual thing for people to break out cocaine at a, an event, at a gathering. Um, and from what I understand, the bar in particular, barristers, are absolutely fueled by it. Um, and also a high percentage of bankers take it to work the ridiculous hours that they work. Um, so, you know, certainly the elites are in on the game. Um, so you've got the issue of kids, I think you've got the issue of minority groups and the linkage, I think, is that minority groups are perhaps disproportionately um, represented in the numbers of people who deal drugs. Um, so when you watch any drug documentary and um, you're sort of following a drug user, it's quite often a white person headed towards a black neighbourhood to score their fix. Um, you know, I might be generalising a lot from the, do the drug documentaries that I've watched, and I've watched a lot of them. <laughs> For whatever reason, I've always been interested in the topic. Um, but um, I think a, a lot of the reason that so many people are incarcerated from minority communities is because of drug dealing and involvement with the substances. Hmm. Um, and I suppose that takes, you, takes us to the next point. The idea of putting people in cages to be raped quite often because they decide to alter their consciousness with a chemical is a really crazy thing, even where you're dealing with addicts who obviously have a sickness. Um, it's just a bizarre thought. Yeah, the idea that, like, you've got an addict who is just living a dreadful fucking life to begin with, and then you pile misery on misery by dragging them through yeah. a court system and throwing them in a cage, is like, to me really inhumane. Yeah, like, show me an addict. And I will show you the trauma behind the addiction, not the drug. Yeah, that's a, and that's a great point, man. That is really, I think, the most interesting point about hard drug users. The overwhelming majority of them yeah. have serious childhood trauma and the addictive drugs become more attractive to them as a result. As a result of, a, for want of a better way to put it, a deficit of happy chemicals yeah. because of previous troubles. Like I'm not saying there aren't people out there who've lived full and happy lives who end up losing everything because they've become addicted to a drug. I'm sure that's the case. But I do really feel that the majority of your traditional drug addict um, sort of category uh, are people who are deeply in pain. Yeah. And, oh, that's and, so sad. Uh, and, you know, and now you're just, you're putting them in jail for doing something, for trying to self-medicate, uh, basically. Yeah, and the question is, where does the zest to do, yeah, where does that come from? It's almost as if 
you know, sometimes people's response to seeing abject misery is to kind of grit their teeth and just want to make it worse for the person. Yeah. To, just, to banish it, it, Well, them. it's the... Uh, it's the sense that they must have done something wrong to deserve it. Yeah, um, it's almost and, like a divine yeah, justice idea. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the people who uh, don't want to, uh, who don't want to give money to a homeless person um, because, well, I have a job. If this person really wanted it, wanted it they'd have a job too. They must, uh, they must want to be lying there in the gutter. Um, it's, it's that similar sort of mindset, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I personally, just for the record, I don't hand over money to people. I buy them stuff. Okay. So I'll take a guy to a sandwich shop. Um, but uh, I don't like handing over money to them, even when they're cute and they have a sign that says, I'm going to just spend it on alcohol. But <laughs> Why don't you just give me a good evening? You know, it's like, oh, no, dude, no, I'm not interested in being involved in that. Come get a fucking sandwich. Uh, so this urge to like pile misery on misery, perhaps it's just a less admirable evolutionary impulse that we have that, as you say, when someone looks miserable and mm. they look like they're hard on their luck or they're, yeah. they're down on their luck, you just, there's something in us that says, well, they must be an yeah. inferior human. Well, people are terrified of the thought that it could just be uh, down to nothing more than luck and placement and where this person was born and how they were raised. They must have done something for sure. I can't just be... The, the only difference between me and this person can't just be the fact that I'm luckier. They don't want to, they don't want to just even think about that. That's a really a interesting point. I mean, I do think personality does make a difference, although environment's a huge factor. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think it's all luck. Although arguably, with some of the interesting arguments put forward by Sam Harris recently about the fact that free will is just basically a concept we use to fill in the gaps for neuroscience we don't understand yet, as religion used to explain natural phenomenon before. I mean, I'm fascinated by this idea. And the reason I suppose I had such a sort of dramatic response to it is that I realised that free will is something that I'd always taken for granted and there's absolutely no fucking evidence that it exists. In fact, the preponderance of evidence seems to suggest that we have far less control over what we're going to do than we think we do in the sense that they can see the decisions that people make seconds before the person considers that they've made the decision. Anyway, we're kind of off on a yeah. tangent here, but I mean... I do think that there is some aspect of like the essence of a person. If I think about us and guys we knew at school yeah. um, and the ones that I have kept in contact with, which are not many, um, I don't think they've changed a fucking jot, honestly. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh... It might put me into the camp of people who sort of sagely say with a shake of their head, people don't change. I'd like to distance myself from people like that. <laughs> But to rephrase it, I just don't think that many people I've known for longer than a decade have really changed at all in, in their fundamentals. Yeah, sense. in their fundamentals. Yeah, thank you. You might even, you, you, I think in many cases you have a different expression of the fundamentals depending on the context and maturity. But 
you know, the fundamentals seem to be very similar. I mean, you don't yeah. seem at all different to how you were at school. Yeah. I don't think you are. <laughs> oh, well, actually, no. I mean, you were very religious at school. That's true. Um, true. Uh, and I think I would, I, I think I'm becoming more left wing as I get older. Um, that's interesting. But that's because you're now a member of the media rather than a <laughs> member of the rural community of Australia, mate. That's yeah. inevitable. But I mean, in terms of, I, I never saw that as being part of really who I am as a person. Um, you no, know, that's but, true. You certainly identified less with country than yeah. a lot of guys who were less country than yeah. you were. Um, yeah. But even just in terms of, um, you know, left wing, left wing, right wing politics and that sort of thing, I never saw that as who I am as a person. Yeah. And it never made sense. It doesn't make sense to me someone who uh, identifies as a, a Democrat or a Republican or a Labour voter or a, a National Party voter in Australia. I think it, I, I, it makes no sense to me at all um, that anyone would um, think that any side of politics can speak for them as a human being on every single yeah, issue. It is it, like it's, it's either absurd. a huge coincidence that the party platform conforms with your views in every respect or you're just a fucking sheep. <laughs> it's one or the other. And I think that in the overwhelming majority of cases, you know, but for the dozen or so archetypal liberals who by the law of averages just happen to have the same views as the party, the rest of them are just sheeple, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, so do you feel... I think We've, we might have covered it up, man. Yeah, 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 we've sort of gone off track a little bit, but that's okay. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion nonetheless. Yeah. All right, let's call it a day. Let's do that. All right.